Let me pray for just a second. Father, Your Word is truth and it's what You use to set us apart, make us more fully Your own in our thoughts, in our deeds, in, in the way we think, Lord, and the way we think affects what we do. And Father, You've given us each a short time, a, a handbreadth of time on planet Earth. And at some point in that time, You've reached down and You've saved us and You are buying back that life, our life, our time on the Earth. And You want us to to consciously buy back the time You give us on this earth as well. And Lord, it requires the truth known and applied, known in our minds and hearts, applied, Lord, in the things we do, the way we choose to live out our life here. And ask that the Scripture this morning would impact both how we think, Lord, and how we live to Jesus' honor and in His name. Amen. I'm going to start with an opening story, a true story. And thank you. That's normal. The story's a little different, and so I sort of question whether even to start with this introduction. Some of you will write me off when I do, and others will say, no big deal. Some of you will be in between. Uh, But because of the topic we're talking about, I wanted to frame the topic in a way that I hope arrests our interest and gets our attention. The topic itself and what the text we'll look at this morning is important, And we don't want to miss it because we think we've heard this thing before. So this is the story, true story. Many years ago, Kathy and I were newly married first year or two. We lived in an apartment not far from here in central Topeka. We went to bed that night like many other nights, went to sleep. I woke up in the middle of the night. I'm lying there in bed and I cannot get back to sleep. And as I'm lying there, I think, You know, this is all pretty subjective, right? But I think God's telling me that He wants me to get up and go pray. And so, fine, the Lord wants to spend a little time with me. I'm good for this. So I get up out of bed. I go to the kitchen, little apartment, sit there at the kitchen table. And I have no other inkling other than I just think God woke me up and wants me to go pray. So I'm praying about one thing and another, you know, just what comes to mind. No startling revelation. There's nothing particular that I can put my finger on. So I pray for about 30 to 40 minutes. And I kind of think like, Lord, I've prayed about anything I can think of and it's been nice hanging out with you and I think I'll go back to bed now. You know, if you don't have anything else for me. Well, just at that moment, I saw something and it really got my attention. And when I say I I saw something, what I saw, I could not see with these eyes the way I see you now. But it was equally real and and startling and and what i saw was a dark robed figure this is real i'm not making this up a dark robed figure black from head to toe like he had a cape on too he looked just like a darth vader figure from star wars and he also had a black satchel with him And he walked in the front door of our apartment and he threw his satchel down on our couch. And I understood that this entity that had just entered our home was saying this was his place. And he was here to hang out and stay for a while. You know what I'm describing as a demon. And I knew what I was seeing. And, and it didn't seem weird in the moment. It just seemed very real. And I suddenly got why God got me up in the middle of the night to go pray. So 
when I saw this entity, I just got flat mad. Because I understood he was coming into our home claiming this as his own. And so I walked into the living room and in Jesus' name, with Jesus' authority, based on God's Word, I said, get out of here in the name of Jesus. And then I knelt and I prayed until that entity was gone. And then I went back to bed. You know, and everything became clear. I didn't know this was going to happen. So God gets me up in the middle of the night to pray. And I'm watchful and I'm thinking about what's going on. And I'm praying and it's for a reason. Because there's an intruder coming into my house I otherwise have no way of knowing about. And he's come to wreak havoc. I don't know what that looks like. In my family's life. I'm the head of my family. This, this means something to me. Now later, that was weird, right? That was weird. And for me too. And, and I'm telling Kathy about this. You can imagine the next day. Now, my wife and I have never had a discussion about anything like this. Okay? And I tell Kathy what had happened. And Kathy fills me in on something about her life that I had never known. And it was this. It's that from her childhood, she had been what we would call demonized by an entity she could only describe as the dark man. This figure that was always dark and in black and had oppressed her since she'd been molested as a little girl. I didn't know anything about any of this. But God got me up in the middle of the night and said, Son, go and pray. And I didn't know why. But it was because God wanted me to be ready for the assault that was coming to our family. And had been going on in my wife's life for decades, literally. This is all to introduce the topic of prayer. And I sort of use what I hope for you as a startling story because... If I tell you we're going to talk about prayer, what's your first response? It's usually one of two things for almost all Christians. It's guilt. He's going to lay the guilt trip on me now. I don't pray enough. Or it's a yawn. It's boring. And I just want to suggest to you that the stakes are so high. Welcome, Naomi. Welcome back to America, dear. Hi, Dominic. Friends from China. Good to see you. The stakes are so high that we can't afford to pray merely out of some deficient motivation of guilt. And if we treat it as a yawn, it's because we don't understand how meaningful and how vital prayer is. You and I cannot be a mature Christian for a number of different reasons in our life. We fail to mature in the image of Christ as God our Father means us to be, if we don't do a number of things, a number of things affect us. If we don't read the Bible and take in the truth of Scripture, we cannot be transformed the way God means us to be. But also, guys, if we don't pray, if we don't have a life that's characterized by prayer, which is merely communication with our Father, we, we cannot be mature Christians. It is impossible. You won't meet a mature Christian who doesn't do a number of things. They're meditating in God's Word, they're making God's Word their own, and they're praying at least. Mature Christians are usually generous and charitable as well. 
as Paul's winding down his letter to the Colossians, he brings up this issue of prayer, and it's serious, and it's a compelling call, and it's something we cannot afford to be ignorant of or to neglect. So God calls us to pray. So hopefully I've got your attention. We're in Colossians 4, verses 2-6. through I'm going to read the ESV. I hope you have a study sheet. We'll get through as much of this this morning as I can, but some of this we'll have to leave unsaid, and you can look up some verses later. Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Paul's talked about the glories of the reality of Christ. He's talked about the full salvation we have in Christ. He compared it to circumcision, in which our old sinful life was cut off with Christ at the cross. It's now Christ that's living in us. We have this redeemed, transformed life. And we saw Paul applied that to our, to our relationships at home, right where we all live. And now he goes on and he covers the issue of prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This theme of prayer runs throughout this epistle. It's a huge theme in the Scriptures, of course, but this isn't the first time Paul's mentioned it in this epistle. If you go back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul had said there, we always thank God. Thank God, that's prayer. We thank God in prayer. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We're giving thanks to God in prayer and we're praying for you. At verse 9 in that same chapter, Paul says, from the day we heard, heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you. Here in verse 3, he says, we're also asking you to pray for us. We'll look at that in a moment. And then again at verse 12, here in chapter 4, Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Guys, if prayer is meaningless, why would anyone struggle in it? And if Paul the Apostle had a lot on his plate, why would he pray so much unless it really made a difference in the lives of others that he prayed for and in his own life as well? We're going to look at verse 2, and this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. Verse 2, Paul says three things about prayer. Continue steadfastly, be watchful with thanksgiving. Take those phrases one at a time. That first one, continue steadfastly is the ESV. If you read the New American Standard or the Holman translations, it says, devote yourselves to prayer. The New King James is, continue earnestly in prayer. To pray with endurance. Not to pray a little, but to pray with endurance. Listen to some of the definitions that come from the Greek term used here. Be devoted. Constant. Steadfastly attentive unremitting, you know, never giving up, never giving up. Continue all the time. Persevere and not faint. Show oneself courageous for a thing. Sometimes to persevere requires courage. Be in constant readiness. Wait on constantly. Paul says when he calls them and when he calls us to prayer, he says be steadfast, be constant, unremitting. Does this characterize your prayer life and mine? Unremitting prayer? 
When you go through the book of Acts and you look at the life of the early church, you see the same word used to describe the prayer life of the early church. If you go to Acts 1, verse 14, you remember after Jesus' death and resurrection, He goes there to the Mount of Olives in Acts chapter 1, and He's taken back up into heaven by a cloud. And He's told the disciples, wait in Jerusalem, you're going to get the promise from the Father, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And until that time, verse 14 says, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They knew they were waiting for something. And while they were waiting, they were praying. And of course, that's exactly how the Holy Spirit finds them on that day of Pentecost, that group, 120 in that upper room, praying. When you look at the life described by Luke in the the early days of the church immediately after Pentecost when Peter preaches to crowds and you've got thousands of new people added to the new church. It says this of them, Acts 2.42, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Devoting themselves, that's the same term Paul used here in Colossians. Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, we would say worship there, and to prayer. That's what the early church was doing. They were devoted to teaching and fellowship and worship, but also to prayer. This is what informed all of their life. By the way, you know, when we talk about, uh, Paul will say, pray all the time, steadfastly, this isn't said in ignorance as if all we do 24-7 is become a hermit or a monk and we get ourselves off someplace in all waking hours we pray. This is part of an integrated life of fellowship and worship and the Word. This isn't, Paul's not being stupid here. But it's a a life that's characterized at any given time by these elements. It's what the apostles did. It's what uh, Luke tells us the apostles were committed to. You remember the apostles were serving the tables there early on in the life of the church for widows. And you can imagine, Jesus had told them that I'm the greatest, I've come to serve you, and you as my representatives, you who are leaders, you're to serve everyone else. So the guys say, we got that, Jesus, okay. We'll be the waiters at the table where we make sure everyone gets enough food. But they started realizing, we realize that we're willing to take the low spot and be the servant, but we're distracted from some other things God's requiring of us. And so they said, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. I usually flip that around, the Word first and prayer second, but no. They said, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. You look in Romans 12.12, Paul there talks about rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. It's the same phrase again. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Prayer should be to us like spiritual breathing. It should be normal. You know, if we're sitting down consciously to pray, or if we're simply going about our work, conversing with the Lord as we do, we're simply talking to God our Father. It should be as normal for us as breathing. You know, how, how's our oxygen level? Are we breathing? Are we praying? So pray, Paul says, and keep praying. Pray steadfastly, unremittingly. When he qualifies what that looks like, he says being watchful. So you say, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to pray. That's supposed to be normal and routine all the time. Pray. But he also says when you pray, ESV says being watchful. The NASB says keeping alert in it. Holman's very similar when it says stay alert in it. 
New King James as being vigilant in it. <clears throat> this comes from a Greek word that means to watch, uh, sometimes used to wake up or to be awake. When I was a roofer many years ago, you'd go over and you get water at the uh, break spot and every cup you took said, aware, alert, alive. You're on a high place. If you're not aware and alert, you're probably not going to be alive. And that's the thought here. Paul says not just to pray, but to be alert in our prayers. To be spiritually awake. Uh, sometimes the reference with this word is to fall asleep. I'm not alert. I'm not aware. So it's to be alert. Listen to one of the definitions used for this. I love to watch is one, strict attention. But this one caught my attention. To take heed lest through remission, through going back, and indolence, laziness, simply overlooking a thing, some destructive calamity suddenly overtake one. Pray with the sense that my prayers make a difference with what's going on in life. And sometimes... Prayer or lack of prayer is the difference between calamity occurring in my life or in someone else's. You know, God woke me up because He wanted His family, my family, defended. I wasn't otherwise alert, but God wakes me up and says, Mike, be alert, go pray. I don't know why, but because I was prayerful and alert, here comes this thing I otherwise would have no knowledge of. So Paul doesn't just say pray, he says have this attitude that I'm thoughtful about it. I'm aware of what's going on around me. I'm aware and alert to what's going on in the lives of folks God's called me to be responsible for. Relationships. Not just family relationship, but certainly starting there. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends that we have with each other. Folks we may know that aren't Christians yet. What is their need? What should I be praying for for them? So a call on one hand to constant prayer. Prayer is a normal part of everyday life. But also with this watchful element. And this is because you, you bring in this thing that Christians, uh, sometimes we kid ourselves that you know in the West we've got it pretty good physically. In the worst economy, we've got food on the table. Life is easy, right? Relatively speaking to the rest of the world or throughout history. But the truth is we're in a spiritual warfare here. We're in a war zone. So one of the other places you'll see this word used about being watchful and vigilant has to do with First uh, Peter. When Peter says that um, we're to keep alert, we're to be awake. Well, why is that? He says because you have an enemy that's like a, a roaring lion. And he's looking for someone he can make a lunch of. So Peter says, what you've got to do because that's the case, you've got to be alert. You've got to be spiritually awake. If you or I found ourselves in the African bush at night when it's dark, and you hear some lions coming through the grass, sniffing and woofing, looking for lunch, and you know you're their target, do you think anyone would have to tell you to pray? They're thanking God for their meal. You're th hoping, God, they don't have a meal coming, at least not in my direction. Do you think it would require any extra motivation to pray? But see, we're supposed to bring that sense of alertness into our prayer life. 
that it's not just that we go through some rote list of God bless so and so and so and so. We're aware of what's going on. We're alert to the needs. And that's what we're praying about. Luther said his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. That's our enemy. And that's the world in which we live in. Satan is still described by Paul in Ephesians 6 as the God of this world. Satan still has, and Luther knew in his time, Satan has power in this world. And whether we pray or not makes a difference. So if we don't think of prayer in any other venue as far as motivational, other than we're at war in the spiritual realms and we have an enemy that wants to hurt us, that's enough motivation to pray and to be watchful. And it's not, I might say, I don't really care what happens to my life, but what about my wife or my children? What about my parents or my friends? What about others? You know, if I don't feel enough motivation to pray that God blesses my business or some element in my own life, what about just praying for those folks that I know, that I'm in relationship with? And certainly, especially those folks that don't yet know Christ. I was listening to Ravi Zacharias on the way in this morning, and he was talking about uh, that Christians live as if the gospel isn't true that heaven and hell really aren't on the line because if we did, we'd be sharing the Gospel more regularly with other people because we understand eternal separation from God and all that's good is at stake. That's Living by faith is sharing the Gospel because we say, Jesus, we understand. Yes, heaven and hell are at stake. And you're using us to communicate the Gospel to others. But friends, the same thing is true about prayer. If I live a life of faith, I pray. Can you imagine how much ink God has wasted in His book if prayer is meaningless? Because He tells us to pray, and He talks about prayer, over and over and over. If we're engaged in what God's doing, we're praying. It's that important. Be vigilant, Paul says, because lives are at stake. Be vigilant, be awake, be aware and alert in your prayers. Steadfast and alert. He also says be thankful We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about this. Um, sometimes a child, uh, perhaps still learning manners and P's and Q's about life, you know, may ask mom and dad for something all the time and not realize that saying thank you is a good thing. You know, thank you for supper, mom, or, or whatever. That's something we have to say. Hey, say thank you because that's appropriate. Well, Paul says when we pray, we should also do so giving thanks when we pray. And I think this goes in both a backward-looking and a forward-looking direction. When I go to God in prayer, and what Paul's talking about here is not prayer as praise or as adoration, because prayer is communication, it can be about anything, but really has to do with petition. It has to do with petition. So when I'm going to God, I'm going to ask for something. It's appropriate towards God, and it's helpful and encouraging towards myself to rehearse what God has already done for me and say thank you. Lord, thanks for what You've already done. Thanks for saving me. Thanks for giving me a future and hope. Thanks for a home. Thanks for job or employment or health or friendship or whatever. Or Lord, thanks for answering the last time I came to You and prayed. I don't know if any of you keep journals of any sort, and I haven't kept one for quite a while, but I used to fairly regularly, and I would record what I prayed. And you know, it's really encouraging to go back through that years later and see how many things God answered from prayer. 
And you know, most of them were not instantaneous. A few of them are those, you know, we prayed in a moment and God did something. But that seems to be the exception to me. We prayed about something for a long time and years or decades, in some cases later, we saw God answer those prayers. So when we go to God to petition, we're reminding ourselves, Lord, thank You for what You've done in the past. We're also going forward in prayer though. And we're saying, Lord, we know who You are. We know Your power. We know Your goodwill. We believe we're praying according to Jesus' name. Your goodwill. And so we pray expectantly, knowing You're good for the future provision that we're praying about now. When you see Jesus in John 11 before Lazarus' tomb, He says, Father, I thank You that You've heard me. I've already talked to You about this. I've prayed to You about this. I know what's coming. So that when I say Lazarus come forth, I know he's coming forth. I've already talked to you. Thank you, Lord. You've already heard me. So Paul says when we pray, don't forget to do it with the spirit of thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done in the past. Lord, thank you for your future provision as well. <clears throat> One of my favorite passages along this line is out of Daniel 6. You remember the story there? Daniel's this great guy that has total success in the king's courts. But he's got guys who don't like him. He's Jewish. I mean, what's to like, right? For the Babylonians and the Persians. He's Jewish. He's from a little corner of the realm over there. And you know what? He's so good at everything he does. We hate this guy. So we're going to bring him down. Well, we know it won't be related to his work, so we'll have to do something else. They get an edict passed by the king that says, for this period of time, if anyone should pray to anyone but the king, he's to be thrown in a den of lions. Now, of course, this is official business going on in the court. Daniel knows what's going on. And he knows when the edict has been passed. So, in Daniel 6, verse 10, it says, the edict's been passed. It says, three times each day, Daniel continued to kneel to God. We know he faced Jerusalem praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Daniel says, my life is on the line. I can be thrown into a den of lions if anyone finds me praying towards Jerusalem and Yahweh. And it says he just kept right on doing it. And by the way, he was giving thanks every time he prayed. His life is on the line. You know, death by lions is not something I'd look forward to. And he's facing Jerusalem three times a day as he was doing before praying to God and giving thanks. And I think he was giving thanks because he knew the Scriptures. He knew the prophet Jeremiah had said there's going to come a time when I take my people out of Babylon in captivity and I'll bring them back. And you see that later in his, his book. But he just keeps right on doing it. And I love, I think you've got on your study sheet this quote, he who kneels before God can stand before anyone. Daniel had the appropriate fear and spirit of thanksgiving towards God. The ultimate power and authority. And that being the case, he could stand before anyone. He could continue to give thanks because he'd knelt before God. This life of prayer. Giving thanks steadfastly with awareness. And thanksgiving is just such a good attitude, guys. It keeps us humble. It frees us from sort of a, a small-minded version of life. Lord, thanks for who you are and what you've done. It's not all about me, Lord. Thanks for what you're up to. So Paul calls them to prayer. And not just sort of sloppy prayer, not just God bless so-and-so, but aware, alert prayer, regular prayer. Having done that, he asks them to pray for him. You see that in verses 3 and 4. 
And he asks this in prayer. Pray for us for open doors to declare the mystery of Christ, making it clear as I should. If you remember months back in Colossians 1 at verse 24, uh, 25, Paul had said, I was made a minister that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. Paul's chief concern in life is to, to declare Christ through his preaching. He'd said that in the first chapter, and he says it here when he asks for prayer. When you pray for me, he doesn't ask for comfort. He doesn't ask for better health. He doesn't ask for a 401k. Remember when he writes this, he's in prison. And he says, this is all I care about. When you think of me and you pray, pray that I have an open door to preach the truth about Christ clearly as I should. He's in prison and so his, he's a little restricted, right? We're looking for open doors. We're looking for opportunities to declare the Gospel to people who haven't heard. And even though he's in prison, he, he actually says elsewhere, uh, I'm in chains, but the Gospel is not in chains. So Lord, while I'm right here in prison, confined, You show me, Lord, where those open doors are so that I can continue to make Christ known to others, to preach the mysteries of Christ. And make it clear as I should. I find it interesting that Paul is the smartest guy on the block. You know, he's a PhD of PhD, studied under Gamaliel. He knows the Torah, he knows the Bible. You know, he quotes it, he writes most of the New Testament. He's one sharp guy. But when he asks for prayer, he says, Hey, when God opens the door so I can talk about Christ, I want to make sure that I say it clearly as I should. He didn't presume on his knowledge. He knew that unless the Holy Spirit was at work, he could mess it up. So he wants to make sure that he is speaking in any given moment to any given audience in a way that will specifically communicate the Gospel to them. And you know, eventually, of course, he ends up before Caesar. So he may, in fact, be thinking of, I'm going to be in the Roman courts. I'm going to be standing before Caesar. And I want to make sure that I'm communicating the Gospel in the way God wants me to so that it's absolutely clear to everyone I speak it to. Paul's under no illusion, and certainly we aren't either as Christians. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that when he proclaims Christ to the Romans generally, many of them write it off because it sounds very foolish that a crucified Jew becomes the judge of the world. You've got to be kidding. And they reject it. And he says of Jews too though. You mean our Messiah was that guy from Galilee that we... We and the Romans crucified? No way. You know, I stumble over that. Paul knows everyone's not going to accept the Gospel, but he doesn't want them to reject the message because he didn't communicate it clearly. So when he asks for prayer, pray for me. Help me to see the open doors that God provides them, that I see them. That I make the Gospel clear as I ought to. That's all I care about. That's what I'm here on earth for. You know, we said uh, a week or two back about forgiveness and long-suffering. We said you may be in a relationship in which God tells you, as He does in Colossians, to forgive someone. And you say, Lord, I just can't do it. And we say, that's okay, because Christ in me can forgive. Lord, I can't suffer with that person longer than I have. And we say, that's okay. My old sinful nature never could. God was under no illusion. 
but Christ in me can suffer long. And we bring that same sense of Christ in us. Christ is our new life. Our old life is cut off and gone. We're new creatures in Christ. Christ's life is in us. And if you look at Jesus' life on the earth, reflected in the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus lived a life of prayer. And that's just to say that Jesus' life in us as renewed, new creation Christians, Jesus' life in us is an impetus to pray. Jesus prayed. Jesus in us prays. Luke 18.1, unsolicited, Jesus told His disciples this story about a judge he doesn't fear people. He doesn't care what people think of him. Your opinion and mine don't count to him. But there's this old woman who just won't leave him alone. And she keeps saying, and she says, I've got a case and you need to hear me and you need to give me justice. And the judge finally relents. He says, man, this gal's wearing me out. I'm going to give her what she asks for. Jesus tells that story to tell us to keep coming to God with requesting, petitioning prayer. One of the great guys from the past, uh, one of the Brits, I'm going to forget by name now, the story's told he had five people, he was a relatively young Christian, he had five people he was praying God would convert, God would save. And two came to Christ right away, a few years later the third comes to Christ, somewhere a little later the fourth comes to Christ, he prayed for these five guys for 52 years before he died. And at his funeral or soon after, the fifth person came to Christ. Jesus tells the story to keep coming, to keep asking, to keep petitioning. We didn't make that up. You know, oftentimes we're discouraged that we pray and God doesn't suddenly answer. And so we just say, okay, well, I'll just give up. But Jesus is the one who says, keep praying. God isn't that stingy judge. God is benevolent and good. God wants to answer and bless. So keep praying, Jesus said. Luke 6.12, before Jesus chose the twelve apostles, He spent all night in prayer. Matthew 26.36, before Jesus faced His own temptation and suffering on the cross, He spends the night in prayer. Luke 22.32, speaking to Peter that last night together, Jesus had prayed for Peter before Peter's temptation. Uh, Peter, Satan's demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you before his friend's temptation. Mark 1.35 and Luke 5.16, Jesus' habit was to rise early while it was still dark, go to a lonely place by himself to pray. If you say, <clears throat> I know I should pray more, I'd like to pray more, but I simply can't, just just treat that just like forgiveness. Lord, I can't seem to do this, but Christ in me can. Christ in me is a praying influence. Lord, would You enlarge Jesus' presence in my life and let me see more of Christ through prayer. My old sinful self's not going to do it. Christ in me, that new creation status, Christ in me can. I'm just going to hazard over real quickly here verses 5 and 6. I did a teaching on Ephesians 5.15 last fall, and I would commend that to you on this topic of uh, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Paul says, make the most of our time. The term he uses there is actually to redeem. And it's to buy something back. And Paul says, treat your life and the interaction you have with outsiders, non-Christians, 
Treat it as a commodity that you're going to make a trade for. You're going to buy it back. You're going to see the days of your life as these opportunities that you cannot afford to squander. You're going to buy. You're going to redeem the time God gives you as you're interacting with non-Christians. This, this requires a whole new mindset towards my interaction with folks who don't know Christ. If we take this seriously. That every interaction I have with someone who's not a Christian is an opportunity that in some way I need to think I need to redeem that. Lord, how do You want me? How can I speak into this person's life? And in fact, all Paul is saying here in their interaction with those folks who aren't yet Christians, he's telling them to do the same thing he's asking prayer for. Because he says, when you talk to them, you say you communicate the truth to them the way they ought to hear it. It requires sensitivity. It requires that we be thoughtful and that we listen to others. You know, if we haven't listened and if we don't know the story of someone that's coming to us that we're ready to just share the Gospel with, we're probably not going to be as effective in communicating what they need to hear. I am all for proclamation. Some people say you can't share the Gospel until you've earned the right. I totally disagree with that. I think it's entirely unbiblical. Proclamation is required of the church and of Christians. Proclaim the Gospel. Absolutely. The thing about that for most of us though is that for most of us, we have not been called to a public proclamation of the Gospel. For most of us, the place we share the Gospel is personal. It's interactive with one or two other people at a time. Well, people don't want to be preached at by one other person. But an interaction, a conversation, they're usually open to that. So, we're called to an interaction, to a relationship with other people. We listen to what they say. We get a sense for where they're at and therefore how the Gospel applies to them. So Paul says to them, do the same thing yourselves that I'm asking you to pray for me about to make the Gospel clear to others as I should. <clears throat> I've gone longer than I intended, which is no surprise, right? So let me wind down. If prayer is relegated to a duty we perform out of guilt, we will not do it. A guilt is, a, is an inadequate motivation. Guilt will not take you very far in anything. It just won't work. It's not enough. If prayer is a spiritual discipline that's too difficult for us, we'll eventually leave it behind. We'll fall apart there too. If prayer is for emergencies only, God, I need help. It will never become a way of life. It will never become the spiritual breathing that God calls it to be for us. But if prayer is integral as part of our new creation life and status we have in Christ, if prayer is the natural interaction of a child with their parent or of a friend with a friend, if prayer is one of the key means by which we avoid spiritual disaster and a key defense against the enemy's attacks on us or those we know and care about, then prayer becomes as natural as breathing. And it becomes as compelling as seeing a rabid dog approaching someone for harm and doing something about it. So Paul calls us to pray steadfastly, unremittingly, with alertness, with vigilance, with an awareness of what's going on, with thanksgiving. There are many people in this church who self-identify as foodies, 
You guys all know what a foodie is? No? Okay. So a techie is someone who loves all things technological, right? And a foodie is a person who loves all things food. So if you're a foodie, you love food, you love to eat, you don't require second invitations to ribs or whatever else we may be serving to dinner. You like to talk about food. You like to talk about recipes. You're a foodie. If we bring that same mentality of a foodie to food, to our thought about prayer, we'll have it. I don't have to pray. I get to pray. I don't have to go meet with my Father. I've got a Father who loves me and cares for me that I get to sit down with. I don't have to stand guard. I get to stand guard and protect my family or my loved ones. Think of prayer like a foodie thinks of food. We'll be close, I think, to the motivation, at least the beginning inkling of a motivation God wants us to have. Father, I ask that You'd help us to live by faith. That is, that we would take Your Word seriously, that we are in a spiritual war, and that prayer matters. And that You've called us to pray, Lord, because on one level, it's the expression of Your own Son's life in us. And it's simply the communication we have as regenerate beings who've come into relationship with our loving Father. And, and it's a tribute and a testimony, Lord, that the Holy Spirit is in us calling us to fellowship. Father, would You help us walk in faith by delighting in You and delighting to spend time with You in prayer and by praying, Lord, with a steadfastness and a vigilance that helps us intercede for the lives and the cares, Lord, for the salvation or for the needs of those around us. Help us to live as Christians who know and love You, Lord, through prayer. In Jesus' name, Amen.